visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Hello. Today, we're talking about Walmart's green revolution. It starts with river rafters and will go to cow power and cow of the future and beyond, uh, beyond the box even. Uh, my guest is Ed Humes. Hello, Ed. Hey, Rob. How's it going? Good. I'm sitting here in Cambridge where it's, we've had this really hot weather. Where are you calling us from? Oh, I'm in uh, Seal Beach, California, where we have the usual morning gloom rolling in off the, the water, so it's cool for now, but it'll heat up before the day gets too old. Yeah, it's ironic how I was on the phone with a group of people yesterday, and I was saying how hot it was, and someone else was saying in Washington, D.C., it was hotter, and I took the hat off to them. And then someone from the San Francisco Bay called in and said, it's cold! And <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, San Francisco doesn't uh, ever get too hot. So. Especially this time of year. <laughs> well, um, let me tell our audience a bit about uh, you. Uh, Ed Holmes is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and author. Uh, and we're going to discuss his latest book, Force of Nature, The Unlikely Story of Walmart's Green Revolution. It's published by HarperCollins and it came out just last month, May or a couple months ago, May 2011. His other books include the Penn Award-winning No Matter How Loud I Shout, A Year in the Life of Juvenile Court. He's also written his best, a bestseller, Mississippi Mud, and Monkey Girl, Evolution, Education, Religion, and the Battle for America's Soul. I understand both books are under development uh, with um, HBO, Ed? Uh, one with HBO and one with um, another production company. Which uh, book is with HBO? A Monkey Girl. Monkey Girl. And then, and then Mississippi Mud's being uh, developed for a, a feature film. Cool. Um, I want to get right to your book, The Force of Nature, The Unlikely Story of Walmart's Green Revolution. It's really a remarkable count of Goliath business stomping, stomping its stomping to like admire a butterfly pollinating a flower. I mean, it's just, it, I was surprised to find in your book um, that it starts with a river guide and then it flows swiftly to boardroom and actions that are not at all in keeping with what my impression of Walmart is. Uh, tell us about um, how you how the book starts off and tell us about it. Well, that's I mean that's certainly what uh, captivated uh, me and made me want to write this story. And I, and I think people are really drawn to that human side of it. I mean, the big picture of the story is why would a bottom line global business like Walmart suddenly decide to undertake a series of very ambitious and and influential green initiatives, uh, which it believed, uh, contrary to 
the conventional wisdom of, of some years ago um, would would not be a cost for them, but would be a source of, of uh, profit for them. Why would they Why would they even consider that? And that's where the storyline, the human part of it that you alluded to, um, this river guide named Jib Ellison, who formed a very uh, unlikely partnership with the CEO of Walmart at the, uh, some years ago, uh, Lee Scott, and they uh, couldn't. You couldn't think of two more different. Uh, people than someone who uh, you know reports to work every day in his Bentonville, Arkansas headquarters, uh, versus uh, a guy who spent most of his adult life out on wild whitewater rivers, leading uh, expeditions all over the world. And when he's home, he lives off the grid in Northern California. Hmm. Uh, uh, and it isn't a, it suffice to say, not a frequent visitor to Walmart, and yet these two. Uh, very different men uh, formed a partnership that remade the biggest business in the world in a, in a direction that's much more sustainable than anyone could possibly have imagined. Yeah, just a remarkable um, difference between life approaches. You know, uh, Jeb Ellison probably doesn't have a BlackBerry that could talk to um, the Walmart executive's BlackBerry. Uh, so he brought a really different perspective, a perspective, as you're saying. And um, how did he get that into uh, into Walmart? Well, the backstory on this goes back seven years, eight years, uh, to a time when Walmart's reputation was about as low as it could be. And the company was casting about for some way to get past the sweatshop scandals and the labor issues and the gender issues and the environmental issues. And they seized on environment as something maybe where they could, could uh, be proactive and do something positive that might um, tip public opinion in a different direction. So that was the initial impetus. It was about image and not really about remaking the business. And meanwhile, <clears throat> Jib Ellison, this river guy, had become a business consultant, and he had struck out on his own after a successful partnership in the business consulting world. He wanted to emphasize environment green and sustainability in his business. None of his partners were interested in that, so he struck out on his own. And uh, he wrangled a meeting with Lee Scott, then the CEO of Walmart, at this very critical moment, as Walmart was losing business, losing customers because of its bad image. And uh, Jib made his pitch, and he said, look, you know, you are looking at environment all wrong. You say, oh, I want to do something where we can give back to the, to the world and do something positive. I know it's going to cost us. It's not really going to help our core business but we want to do something positive. And Ellison says, that's exactly the opposite of the way you need to think about it. Going green is going to help your business. It is going to make more business for you. It's going to save you money. Let me show you how. And basically, Scott looks at him and says, all right, prove it. And they, they started small, but in that small way, they began to turn Walmart into a laboratory to test the business case for sustainability. And... <laughs> Needless to say, they're still doing it after seven years, so that test uh, uh, succeeded, and they began to embrace a whole series of initiatives from greener trucks to greener stores to reduced packaging, and and basically every aspect of their business has been um, infected by this business case for sustainability, infected in a good way. And Jeb started with a toy truck. The first thing they tried, or one of the first, was a toy truck. 
And, you know, it's Walmart, so whatever they sell, they sell by the millions. <laughs> so they looked at this one particular product. It's a house brand. It's for toddlers, plastic truck. What can we do to make it greener? So they looked at the packaging and said, well, the packaging's kind of big. It's got a lot of marketing stuff on it, but it doesn't need to be as big as it is. What if we shrink the packaging a little bit? So they shaved a couple inches off uh, a few million uh, toy truck packages and then sat back and tried and figure out what the impact of that was. Well, the first thing they know is they don't have to cut down 4,000 trees to source the cardboard for those boxes. So that's a win for the environment. What does it do for the business, though? All right, what's the payback? You said we're going to make money at this. And, and so Ellison crunches the numbers and says, well, okay, well, here's what happened. You had 497 fewer cargo containers shipped from China because you now fit more of these toy trucks in a container. Ditto for all your thousands of trucks, uh, you know, crisscrossing the nation, delivering these, store, these uh, goods from warehouse to individual Walmarts. You've got hundreds fewer trucks needed to ship the same amount of toys. Again, taking up less room. And calculate the fuel savings and the time savings and the labor savings. You save $2.5 million by shaving a couple inches off of uh, one package of one product. And if you don't think $2.5 million means much to a, you know, a multi-billion dollar company like Walmart, it does mean a lot because they'd have to sell $60 million worth of those toy trucks because of their low margins to net $2.5 million in profits. So Say that again? What did that they, sell? To, to profit, to make $2.5 million in profits, Walmart's yes. margins are so slow, the margin they make above the what their goods cost versus what they charge, they'd have to sell $60 million worth of those same toy trucks to make that $2.5 million that they saved right. by shaving that packaging. So, you know, Neil, say the light bulb goes on over the Walmart leadership. And the first thing they say is, man, why didn't we see this before? This is like picking up money off the ground. And then the next thing they ask is exactly the question Jim Ellison wanted to hear is, where else can we find these kinds of opportunities? And all of a sudden, Green was cast in the role of opportunity, opportunity to make a better, more prosperous business. And that was a complete flip of the attitude that, well, not just Walmart, but every global major business had in 2004 about sustainability, that it was a pain in the neck rather than an opportunity. So that shift began to spread through the company. And uh, This amazing shift for, for Walmart, it's huge because, as Bill McDonough writes about beforehand, you know, the half-life of stuff coming out of Walmart before it goes into a landfill is just enormous. And because of the business plan that you described, it was all about moving massive amounts of merchandise to stay afloat. And that's not good for landfills or the environment. And, and this is a, this little, just the little truck thing, you know, is changing the perspective of, oh my gosh, we don't have to accelerate the, uh, the moving a product, we can improve improve the product, I guess. Well, the key became uh, looking for waste. And, and Walmart wow. has always considered itself really efficient, more than its competitors. That's why it can undercut their, everyone else's right. prices. Less gets the culture, look for waste. But they never looked at it through a lens of sustainability where you're looking for a different kind of waste. And so it turned out there was massive opportunities. Why can't we have skylights in our stores, somebody asked, and, and use sunlight instead of electric power? 
And it was sort of a, duh, moment. Yeah, why don't we have skylights in our stores? And you're talking about 20 to 30% savings on massive electric bills once you do something that simple. And then there's a lot of other things you can do that aren't high-tech and costly that make your system more efficient. Putting One of the early uh, successes was putting auxiliary power units on their 7,000 big rig tractor trailers, uh, second biggest fleet in the country uh, in the business world. Well, what does an auxiliary power unit does? It lets the, the main systems, the air conditioning and the heating and so forth, continue to run in the truck without the big diesel engine being on. Well, without those APUs, the trucks are constantly idling, whether they're moving or not. Immense carbon emissions, immense energy expenditures. So they installed these little generators in every truck, and they saved hundreds of millions of dollars Mm. and lowered their carbon footprint and lowered their fuel use. And again, it was a, oh, man, why? what took us so long? And, And after that, they were hooked. Jib Ellison became the only weekly meeting scheduled with the CEO of Walmart uh, that wasn't a Walmart employee, that was a contractor. Every week they'd get together and figure out what was next on the sustainability front in order to, to, they said they want to bake this into the DNA of the company. They don't want it to be an add-on that, that sustainability had to become part of the everyday business plan because... That's the way you, you, you get this kind of progress with everybody in the business thinking about how to make things less wasteful and more efficient and more sustainable. And, and it turned out all the fears about lowering carbon emissions were that big business and the Chamber of Commerce and so forth have complained about for years and, and used to block climate legislation. Walmart realized, well, you know, lowering carbon is really we're talking about using less energy. And if you're talking about less energy, what you're really talking about is keeping more of your money in, in, the, in, in the black ink instead of putting it in the red ink by spending it on energy. So they embraced this idea of lowering carbon big time because they saw it as a way to, to create profit and create jobs and, and as a win for them. So they have, have gone after carbon throughout their supply chain and proven that it's not a job killer, that it's a, a profit maker. And that's also, I mean, this reddest of red state company marching to Capitol Hill and testifying in favor of climate legislation is, you know, regardless of what you think of the overall business model of Walmart, and it is far from perfect, when you have a, a messenger like Walmart saying this, you know, tapping into their inner Al Gore and, and saying, you know, lowering carbon is good for business. That is a sea change and a half. Ed, we're going to interrupt for a quick break. and We'll be back with Ed Humes and the greening of Walmart. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. All together now, all together now. 
Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. This is the Voice America Green Living Channel. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, I'm talking with Ed Humes, who's author of Walmart's Green Revolution. And, um, Ed, where can people go to learn more about uh, your books? Well, you could um, try my website. It's uh, just my name, edwardhumes.com, and that'll provide some background. I have a little blog with uh, um, different uh, articles on uh, environmental issues and other, other subjects that I've written about, and links to all my books, so... That's a good starting point. Yeah, because you're you're hit, you're hitting some real topical issues here on on uh, carbon emissions and on sustainability and greening companies. Um, I imagine it's a pretty active blog. Uh, so yeah, before, and there's a, actually there's a new piece I have up there in, from that I wrote for Sierra Magazine on the green green and the military, which actually has a lot of parallels to Walmart. So some of your listeners might be interested in that as well. Absolutely, yes, yes, because. Uh, they saw the same thing, right? If if they could save on fuel expenses, they were saving money, and and yeah. they link it to national security too. Uh, yeah. Anyway, you know, one less every gallon less uh, that you have to burn of imported oil is that much uh, more uh, uh, security for our, for our country. That's how Absolutely. the DOD is looking at it. So you were telling us how that Walmart actually went to Washington to call for less carbon emissions. And I, I bet they were, tell us what was going on inside of Walmart when they were outside calling for greater reduction of emissions. Well, that you know, the light bulb went on uh, over their heads. And, and you know, the, the former CEO, Lee Scott, jokes, and it was a complex fluorescent light bulb that went on over their heads they, because they became, incidentally, the, the biggest purveyor of, uh, of energy-saving light bulbs in, in the world uh, through, through this initiative. But that's a, that's a, a digression. They, they realized that <clears throat> carbon... Reductions, carbon emissions um, that were dri- driving climate change could be reduced by their company in a way that would be profitable for them. They lower their energy costs. 
they lower their carbon footprint. It's a win-win all around. So they started with their trucks and their stores uh, and their operations around the world. But then they realized that that was just a relatively small piece of the Walmart footprint, that 90% of their footprint, their energy and carbon footprint, uh, was in the products that they uh, uh, mm. purchased from other companies and then resell. So what they really needed to do was understand the footprint of everything they sell, which is, <laughs> as you can imagine, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of products. We're talking about a large chunk of the consumer universe. And in thinking about that, they said, you know, we have no idea what the footprint of anything is. What, 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 is the, what is the energy and carbon footprint of a bottle of beer or a pair of sneakers? Uh, how do we measure that? If you can't measure it, uh, you can't manage it. You can't reduce it. You need to know what your starting point is. So they couldn't figure out this puzzle. And they have this, this, the head of their energy uh, program, this guy named Jim Stanway. And uh, he was tearing his hair out of this question. How do we figure this, this puzzle out? There's no data. And so finally, he's sitting in his kitchen one night, and he says, what we need is a pilot program. And he looks around his kitchen, and at random, he chooses seven products. He says, I'm going to call the manufacturer of these and say, we need to know your footprint. You need to tell us how much carbon and how much energy goes into making and then he starts making a list, a DVD, a bottle of beer, a tube of toothpaste. And one of the things he looks at is a gallon of milk. Well, you can imagine, you get a call from Walmart, you can't say no to the biggest retailer in the world. They want something, you got to do it. Uh, if you, <clears throat> or, or else, you know, falling out of favor of Walmart could be very detrimental to your business. And, uh, and, but these companies were freaking out. We don't know how to measure our carbon. We've never done this. How, how are we going to do it? But one organization that gets the call is dairy management, which is the, one of the, the largest uh, dairy trade association in the country. It's based in Illinois. And uh, the, the woman who takes the call is one of their senior executives named uh, Aaron Fitzgerald. And instead of freaking out about this idea, she suddenly energized by it. She says, ah, this is what we've been waiting for. This is our pathway to reinventing dairy and make, you know, taking our business back from Coke and Pepsi and so forth. And, and actually, there's a little excerpt I'd like to, to read to you from, uh, oh, please. from that, be good. that that uh, addresses that moment uh, when, when this call comes in from Walmart. Well, that's what I heard about the, uh, the light bulb story was that uh, Walmart went to GE and said, we want this more efficient light bulb, and GE said, well, we can't do that. And so Walmart said, great, we'll go to Philips or something. And GE yeah. immediately well, said, oh, yeah, we, we can't can do, do that. that. Okay, so here's this. Uh, go for it. Yeah. Uh, forgive me for uh, pausing here. So Aaron Fitzgerald came to dairy management from a medical supply conglomerate where she had been finance manager, but she had grown up on an Ohio farm and brought a persuasive passion to incentives that govern the dairy industry are all crazy. Every time she ticks off the points in her argument, she gets into a lather. The government decided a half century ago to subsidize cheddar. No other cheeses, just cheddar. The laws are still in the books, so more cheddar cheese than anyone needs is produced every year and wasted every year. Other cheesemakers, they're on their own. Up to 30% of the milk shipped to markets each year ends up thrown away after expiring on the shelves. A phenomenal amount of waste. 
wasted processing, wasted energy for refrigeration, wasted diesel fuel burned to transport hundreds of tons of milk that will nourish no one and generate no income. If three out of 10 iPhones had to be destroyed rather than sold and used, or 30% of flashlights or basketballs or cornflakes or any other product, such waste would be fatal. The companies would go bankrupt. Investors would flee. But with dairy products, that's just the way it is. It's accepted. It's been that way for decades. It's how the industry is structured, in part because of its unbreakable tie to the venerable pasturation process for sterilizing milk and the limited shelf life that process confers. Our practices encourage waste, Fitzgerald laments. Farmers are paid to waste. It is absolutely insane. Walmart's sustainability push has come at the best possible moment for dairy. America is in a health, energy, environmental crisis, says Fitzgerald. Waste is no longer an option. And who is in the best position to address health and energy and environment all at once? In Aaron Fitzgerald's view, it's the farmer. That should be the new paradigm for rebranding milk, she told her boss. We, can't compete on, we can compete on health and environment. Coke can't. Flavored water can't. Gatorade can't. This is where we can innovate and win. A business's embrace of sustainability as a core strategy rather than as an ancillary act of social responsibility or marketing cleverness always seems to begin with just such a moment. Fitzgerald realized it when Walmart asked for dairy's carbon footprint and her impassioned argument changed the dairy industry. So basically what we have is Walmart asking this question, what's your footprint milk industry? And the dairy industry responding by launching a program that sought to basically reinvent cows and dairy and, and the way uh, dairy uses energy uh, and it's uh, uh, revolutionary in a, very much the same way that the changes that Walmart had been uh, uh, structuring inside its business has been revolutionary. So you have a river guide that's the catalyst for Walmart, and now Walmart becomes a catalyst for other industries like dairy to change the way they view and act on uh, green and sustainability. But I doubt the light bulb didn't go on as quick in dairy industry as it went on in Aaron's head about being asked to do a sustainability footprint. There must have been well, some... you have to show what it's going to bring you, uh, you know, because if it's just a, a labor, la- uh, yeah, right, labor so, task and burden, they're not going to do it or want to do it. So there had to be a, a, a carrot to go along with the stick, and and there was. I um, love the quote of the farmer going, "Sustainability, huh? I've been doing it since 1787. Call me sustainable, you know." Yeah, we're, we are stewards of the land. We know what we're doing. We don't need you to tell us that. And, yeah, exactly. and that actually was the, the initial response. But then, and, then tell us about Dairyville. Well, what, what they did was they brought together the dairy industry in a way that um, had never been done before. And at this, by, by this time, uh, Jim Ellison's one-man operation had turned into a, a much larger uh, company called Blue Sky Sustainability uh, with many clients in the corporate world, but Walmart being the, you know, the big kahuna. Uh, and now Dairy was, had become their uh, client, and they convened this meeting. And it had dairy farmers. It had their 
<laughs> nemesis, the dairy processors, the people who pasteurize and, and, and uh, you know, process the milk, uh, at the, who they're always battling with. They almost never sit down in the room together. And they had people from state and federal agencies that are involved in the health and safety of, of milk. They had electric utilities and farmers who grow the feed that dairies use. And they brought everybody together to try and figure out how they could cooperate in a way that would make sense for their businesses and make sense for the planet. And <clears throat> during this meeting, they were encouraged to really create a vision. And they, they did these crazy little exercises. They would interview one another as if one was a journalist and one was a, you know, their subject to try and build common ground and find out about one another. They were writing like fake newspapers, reporting on their work. And, and then they did this thing where they, con- they used craft materials like a kindergarten class to build this sort of vision of what uh, uh, the ideal uh, uh, combination of their efforts of dairy and farming and energy could be. And, and they created this little dairy fill concept. And what it boiled down to was when they stepped back, they, they saw they had created some a really cool idea where you have a a, a dairy dairy farms that are kind of a, the center of a, a town's economy. You, they're producing a lot of waste material, cow manure and so forth, but that manure is being used to generate electricity because there's technology called uh, anaerobic digesters that can turn, well, cow poop into electricity. Uh, we ha- the technology is there, but uh, the legislation isn't. The the linkage between the farm and the manure and the utilities doesn't exist, and it's a bureaucratic block. It's not a technological block. So they part of Dairyville's concept was they could overcome those obstacles. You had compost produced uh, uh, also by these anaerobic digesters, and it was going to community gardens and the schools and the businesses were just sending their waste to these digesters, and that in turn was making more power. And you had this self-sustaining little uh, community and economy that was basically dealing with its waste and its energy and its economic issues locally in a very unique way that was immensely better for the planet. It was lowering carbon, it was lowering fossil fuel use, and it was uh, uh, a rethinking of how the dairy business could operate in a more environmentally benign way. And people in that room got very excited about this concept and pledged to work together to try and, and make this happen. And there were that along with a series of other products, projects to try and lower the footprint of the, the cows themselves. Uh, on the environment. We'll be back to hear more about Dairyville and cow power with Ed Humes after this break. Think about it. Think that we could Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. All together Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and 
and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI Eco Steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. This is the Voice America Green Living Channel. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, I'm talking with Ed Humes, and he's the author of Force of Nature, the Unlikely Story of Walmart's Green Revolution, published by HarperCollins. And uh, Ed was just telling us about how Walmart, with its purchasing power, is able to get everybody to listen to them, and they managed to pull together a meeting of the most, not often the people who get to be, that work well together are the different aspects of the dairy industry, and while they have their differences, they managed to come together and create a vision of a community that was essentially powered by cows. And um, you were saying how they could, um, well, that they could channel the, tell me, what were you saying? Well, no, that's exactly right. You, you could, right now, if you have a large dairy operation, uh, there's a huge amount of waste produced in terms of manure and uh, and other products that are just terrible for the environment. And the idea was, uh, let's not treat this as waste anymore. It's the same idea that Walmart embraced. Let's let's look at this as a uh, as a potential uh, material we can profit from. And they uh, and examined all sorts of of things that you can do. One is to create electricity by uh, the process called uh, anaerobic digestion. It's it's basically a big a big tank that you create uh, that uh, you place the manure in and it uh, uh, breaks down, creates uh, uh, something called biogas, which is mostly methane, and it can be burned or processed and turned into fuel that you could put in vehicles and uh, uh, and generate electricity with. So this was a, a, a turnaround. You take what had been environmental bane, all this manure, and turn it into a fuel. That was one aspect of of this Dairyville concept, and and Dairyville itself, it's not, they're going to go out and create a Dairyville. The idea no. was to look at how these different kinds of solutions to the uh, the, the footprint of dairy could uh, be employed to to lower the footprint and raise the profitability of the dairy industry. And, and, and cow power is, is a big part of it. A lot of the, I mean it. The activity created a vision of a self-sustaining village of, you know, that could be powering itself from dairy waste. And 
this is a real problem with um, rural America is that, you know, it's hard to get the power has to come from nuclear power plants or big power, coal-burning power plants, and then you have to ship, you have to, you know, somehow wire it out there to these outlying exactly. pastoral communities, and here's an opportunity for them to have their own local power. Yeah, well, the, the stopper right now is the um, lack of a, a legal framework that would require utilities uh, to purchase this electricity right. at, at a market rate. You know, Germany has something called the feed-in tariff law. And basically what that means, if you, ge- if you Rob Moyer, generate power and connect it to the grid, uh, your utility has to give you a market rate for that, and then they resell the power. Um, because of that law, Germany is the uh, generates more power from solar energy than uh, per capita than any other country in the world. More than far more than the U.S., which has so many more solar resources than cloudy old Germany. So the utility industry has not embraced the feed-in tariff in the U.S. In fact, they have fought it tooth and nail. Yeah, they talk uh, about the expenses. I, I, of, they can't just have the meters running backwards. They have to re, re-grid the grid or something. Exactly. So it's and going to take if we, if a Walmart that, pushing then on. Then Cal Power, not to mention other forms of renewable energy, would be much more re- doable investment. So until, until we have that roadblock eliminated, it's going to be really tough. But part of this coming together of, of all these players in the, you know, the, 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 the the Dairyville meeting was to try and, and create a framework where they could get around that and where the funding and the, and the payoff for investing in cow power generation uh, would work. And Absolutely. so that's, you know, that's happening now, but not as fast as it could with the right legislation. So uh, they're turning to the states rather than the feds now to try and get this in place. So we'll see. That's we- unfolding now. Now, some of the other cool things that, uh, are uh, part of this rethinking of the dairy industry yes. has to do with the cows themselves. And this, they call it the Cow of the Future pro- Project. I love that name, the Cow yeah. of the Future. Uh, it's very 50-ish in a way, but it really sums up um, the problem with, uh, and your listeners may well be familiar with this, but cows themselves are serious uh, greenhouse gas emitters. Uh, primarily through their burps. A lot of people think it's the other end, but actually it's cow burps that uh, they burp well, something called enteric methane, uh, methane gas that comes from the, their digestive systems. And they have a colossal impact on uh, uh, the greenhouse gas uh, emissions I- around the world. And the problem with that is that, uh, unlike carb- it, it, methane is 27 times more uh, potent a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide, you know, the product of, of combustion in our cars and so forth. So cow burps are a, a serious issue. And the way modern dairies work, giving cows uh, grains and corn and soy rather than grass has exacerbated the cow burping and methane problem because uh, their systems aren't built to digest that kind of feed and it makes them gassier. So uh, the question that the dairy industry began to address and working with all sorts of university researchers around the world is how can we um, cut the burps, cut the gas, and and make our future cows more uh, efficient, basically. 
And so they're looking at different breeds, different feeds, uh, going back to more grass in the diet, uh, adding, uh, turns out, uh, flax and some other types of natural products to the feed can aid the digestive process for cows and reduce the enteric methane. They're even looking at inoculations, vaccinations that can uh, kill the uh, organisms that uh, live inside the digestive systems of cows that uh, make all this excess methane. So there's a lot of solutions they're testing out now to, to build this cow of the future. It doesn't mean a Franken cow. It just means a less gassy cow. Could be a happier cow because he doesn't have such. And it would be a happier cow, and perhaps a more productive cow. Um, so, so we'll have to see. What, uh, it's probably no one solution, but multiple ones that can uh, help deal with this footprint issue. But um, one of the the wins on this is you add things like flax and more omega three to the diets of cows in order to lower their gas. It turns out you get a healthier, more nutritious milk, too. So, again, you get some some gain beyond the environmental gain that uh, could uh, be a win for the, the dairy business itself. It's a double gain because which is, you know, what Walmart has lobbied for, climate legislation, then these kinds of reductions would be a source of, of carbon credits and... Uh, uh, an income for the dairy industry, and that would really drive this kind of innovation forward. Yes, it really would. Uh, and they also found areas in the shelf life to make a difference. Well, then we get to pasteurization, which is a, you know a century-old process to safeguard our milk supply. And it basically consists of a rapid uh, heating and cooling of uh, of milk. Um, it's not the only way to do that. There's, there's other uh, uh, ways to go about pasteurizing. There's UV um, uh, light, which can also sterilize milk and create shelf-stable milk that can last for instead of weeks, but many months. And other countries are using this technology. The U.S. is really locked into its very old approach. <clears throat> and so part of the uh, this uh, cow of the future product uh, project is to experiment with other ways of of processing milk that make it more durable, uh, but don't affect its its safety or its taste. Messing around with the taste of milk is a is a is a scary proposition for for the dairy industry because they don't want to turn people off. Mm. Uh, but. Uh, the potential rewards in eliminating this immense 30% waste of milk and lowering refrigeration costs and, and extending shelf life so that, uh, you know, you could uh, expand nutrition to the to third world countries, for instance, where, where milk is not readily available because of the lack of proper refrigeration. Um, there's a lot of... Uh, of uh, positives that can come out, uh, environmental and social, out of rethinking how we pasteurize milk uh, and, and making it more efficient and less energy intensive and, and real potential energy savings there as well uh, if, if this moves forward. And that's now being studied and submitted to the FDA to see what, what new options can be um, embraced by the dairy industry. And the, the whole industry seems to be responding. You know, in other aspects of Walmart's work, it's been 
suppliers, but in the case of dairy, it seems, is it the whole industry or? Whole, whole industries really have been influenced by, by Walmart, and dairy is just an example. The apparel industry is also, uh, uh, you, you know, the, yes. the companies that represent 85% of the apparel industry have come together uh, through a, a partnership between Walmart, you know, sort of the evil empire, and then, you know, the, probably one of the greenest companies in the world, Patagonia, based out here in California. Uh, and run by the legendary uh, mountaineer uh, Yvonne Chouinard. They've actually, after swearing up and down for years that he'd never work with Walmart, Chouinard has uh, gone to work with Walmart and the entire apparel, global apparel business, or 85% of it, to become more sustainable and to to sort of make public in the form of uh, um, tags and, and sort of smart barcodes that you could actually scan as a consumer to find out what the footprint of your sneakers or your athletic gear or your your sweater is uh, and make your buying decisions accordingly. And that is a huge advance over where we are now, which is basically a guessing game. Well, we're going to have to take another break, and um, I urge people to find uh, Ed's book uh, to read about the details that we're talking about. Um, and we'll be right back after this break. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. All together Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. This is the Voice America Green Living Channel. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking with Ed Humes about his book, uh, The Unlikely Story of Walmart's Green Revolution how Walmart has taken to turning waste and harm into health and wealth uh, by um, the whole sustainability project. 
and and philosophy and, and I guess paradigm. Uh, in the uh, third part of his book is entitled Beyond the Box, and he introduces the third part with a quote from David Suzuki, which I'm going to read to you. Economists think they are so smart, but they don't consider the services nature performs for us. They call those services externalities. In In other words, they don't care but try to figure out what it would cost us to do what nature does for us. It adds up to $33 trillion. Um, that had quite an impact when uh, Suzuki spoke to Walmart. Oh, oh yes, this, this idea of, of, of natural capital, of ecosystem services, is really the, um, the big missing piece uh, that, that we have to... When I say we, I mean the world of business and government and and, and consumption have to embrace uh, if we really want to get on the sustainability train and 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 you know make some progress on both the environmental and economic economic issues that we need to make progress on. The idea is that we we've been getting a free ride or what we believe is a free ride off of nature for. Um, a very long time, where we just take for granted the, the purification of water and fresh air, and uh, uh, you know all the resources that are uh, so so uh, um, beneficially tucked within the Earth's crust, uh, our forests, and so forth. That uh, we we have been exhausting them during the last hundred years at a, a tremendous clip, and it turns out that if we keep going at the current rate we're doing by, uh, you know, sometime during the decade of the 2040s, there ain't going to be any more stuff to use up. We're, we're going to have exhausted what we've got. And Suzuki's point is that that stuff actually has value. And w- if we wait until it's not available to us anymore, uh, and we have to pay for it, uh, we're going to crash and burn as a civilization. So his message is we need to start Structuring our economy in a way that recognizes the value of uh, these these natural services now, and building that into our economy, and uh, big businesses like Walmart are beginning to say, you know, that makes sense uh, because we already know being green and being more sustainable is good for our business. So if if thinking about nature in that way helps us do more of that, hey, we're we're okay with that. So. The business world is slowly realizing that it can't treat the natural resources that we have as a, as a free ride, and they're beginning to incorporate that into their into their planning, so that they will be prepared for the day when things become more scarce. So that's that's what Suzuki's getting at, and it's that's going to be a shift that takes a much more concerted effort than we've seen so far, and, and a real realization by everyone. That, that we're in a much more fragile situation than, than most people seem to accept at this point. And we're not just talking climate, but we're talking about water and air and everything else. So, right. That's the next big thing. And, and you know, it's, it's hard to get there. I mean, Walmart is by no means a sustainable company today. It is greener and more sustainable than it was seven years ago by far. But it's still a big outsourced company that depends on constant growth and people buying ever more amounts of stuff to 
to thrive. And, um, you know, they're slowing down the Titanic right now, but they haven't turned to Titanic yet. So they've got a ways to go. But what's cool is that um, they're having an influence beyond their stores uh, on other industries like apparel and like the detergent industry and you name it. They have They have made it safe and sensible for other industries and big businesses to start thinking about sustainability as, as not as a, a luxury or a burden, but as a necessary part of their business. And, and that's the path that uh, big business is now embracing. And that's one of the few positive things going on in the environmental realm right now, in my opinion. And, uh, and one of the more hope, you know, hopeful trends, I think. But how we get from that, these these efforts to be more sustainable to to a world where we actually are using our natural capital uh, in a way that's sustainable. Uh, you know, we've got a long road ahead of us on that. Now, the, um, the big index will help buyers, purchasers, think, I mean, people, shoppers, think along um, other bottom lines besides... Um, econo- you know, economic, they can think of more of an environmental economics in terms of uh, the, the, what it's doing to the earth. Yeah, well, this is a big piece of, of solving this, this problem of, of understanding our true, the true value of nature is, is what Walmart calls the index. And it's not a Walmart project. It's a big consortium of industries and agencies and uh, the financial industry and so forth that are coming together to create a basically a database of things we consume, every product you buy, um, to, to measure its 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 life cycle, its impact on the world in terms of energy, in terms of carbon, in terms of water, and 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 uh, use of uh, raw materials, and how how green or how ungreen it is, so that when you when this index is in place, the first thing it's going to do is let other businesses source their materials and their products in a more environmentally sound way. You know? And then the next stage is to give this information to consumers so that they can look at a tag or scan a barcode and know that the organic sweater they're buying at Sam's Club or Target um, has scored really high on, uh, you know, conservation of water or in the the, the way uh, uh, laborers in Thailand are treated or, or, or you name it. That data will then be available. This is really uh, important because ecosystems and social systems are so complex that people are going to value different aspects differently. So this index that lays everything out, so the people who are more concerned about Water rights and human rights can shop according to water rights, and those who first want to check out the social right conditions can do that. So it's a, it's is this the way that you think they can uh, be turning um, ecosystem services into a market force? Absolutely, because a, a lot of the things that you do to score high on an index like this are going to be beneficial to your business. You know, using less energy, using less water. By and large, not every time, but most of the time, the more sustainable choices are the more um, profitable ones. 
Because you're saving money. You're saving That's energy. Right. It's, a lot of it's no-brainer stuff. Less packaging costs less. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, not a, it's not magic. It's, it's common sense. In fact, it's funny. I go. I talk, I've talked about this on a number of sort of conservative uh, radio shows uh, uh, that uh, are not big on environmental issues, and they, uh, you know, the hosts have, have repeatedly said, "Oh my God, this isn't like green crazy Al Gore stuff. This is common sense. We should all be doing this." And they're exactly right. Uh, and so, when you have this 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 information available about the the greenness of a product or the dirtiness of a product, then you have companies competing to score better. And, can, and you have the added market force that they're going to try and outdo uh, uh, others uh, in order to score well on this index. And then it becomes it's sustainable in and of itself. Now, do consumers care? Most of consumers care about this? Not so much, really. I mean, there's a, there's a segment of people who buy products based on their greenness, yes, but by and large, price is the big consideration and familiarity and, and, and uh, convenience. And we're out of time, but I want to thank you for taking so much time to explain to us your book, Walmart's Green Revolution, and how it's really a, a shopping information that we can take to any store, and it's a way of looking at businesses. Absolutely, yeah. And Thank you, Ed. Hopefully the next generation will embrace that green information. That's Walmart's plan. That's right. Thank you very much. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Green Living Channel. We'll talk again then.